Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money, but are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. There is some question about whether it was an inside job. That will not be discussed in this house. He absolutely became furious at the mention of the car barn murder. I would say he's ruthless. It can become deadly given certain circumstances. Only for the grace of God, she's managed to make it to the shore and is uh, somehow found by the Baltimore County Police. Welcome back to Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This is Episode 8. This podcast may contain graphic language and is not suitable for children. Previously on The Car Barn Murders. The investigators were running themselves ragged, pursuing suspect after suspect, only to release everyone without any follow-up or explanation. Lawrence Pettit, George Bruffy, Walter Oliver, Arthur Waugh, Luke Johnson, Harry Simon, Tony the Stinger Cugino, William Clark, Bill Cleary. The list went on and on, and the car barn case was getting ice cold. A year went by. Detective Theodore Volton received a letter on his desk from Horace Davis, an inmate of the D.C. jail. Detective Volton and Sergeant Leroy Rogers interviewed Horace Davis in January of 1936. Davis implicated his friend, Walter Oliver, after Oliver confessed to being involved in the Carbarn murders. Two years later, in April of 1938, Horace Davis was taken to the U.S. District Attorney's Office and he gave a sworn affidavit regarding his claims. 
Davis's information seemed to be accurate after the detectives followed up on his story about his involvement with Walter Oliver on an unreported armed robbery back in 1933. They found the evidence to back it up. Horace Davis was telling the truth. By the middle of 1938, it seemed like the state of Maryland was building a case against Walter Oliver and others, but nothing ever came of it, and there's no explanation or why the charges were either null-prost or perhaps just swept under the rug. Things were percolating in the background as the detectives continued their ground-pounding and the political machine was working overtime. Right after the car barn murders, the Capital Transit Company offered a $1,500 reward for information that led to the suspects. That would equate to about $30,000 today. And despite that cash reward, even in the desperate times of the Depression, nothing came of it. By 1937, Transit Company President John Hanna wanted answers, and he had a sit-down with Montgomery County State Attorney James Pugh to suggest a changing of the guard. Capital Transit President John Hanna wanted new, more experienced district detectives assigned to the case, and he was of the same mindset as the majority of citizens, that there didn't seem to be a reason why these murders had not been solved after two years. On February 9, 1937, John Hanna wrote a letter directly to D.C. Superintendent of Police, Major Ernest Brown, outlining his concerns and suggestions. Dear Major Brown, Mr. James Pugh, State Attorney for Montgomery County, has just recently called to see me in connection with the investigation of the murders of James Mitchell and Emery Smith. He has advised me that the investigation at this point is not such that an immediate solution is evident and there's been little activity on the part of those detectives who are in the beginning assigned to this case. In his opinion, if it's possible for you to assign two of your detectives at an early date in the future, that a solution is possible. He also advises us that those suspected of participation in the crime are all from the District of Columbia. We don't feel that this request for further cooperation from the Washington detectives is unreasonable. Very truly yours, John Hanna. The following day, State Attorney James Pugh also wrote to Major Brown in support of John Hanna's suggestion for more experienced D.C. detectives to take over the flailing case and finally get some closure. On behalf of the state of Maryland, I make this formal request of you to make the assignment of two trained detectives to complete the unfinished investigation of the murders of James Mitchell and Emery Smith. I have come to the conclusion that if you are able to assign Lieutenant Floyd Truscott and Sergeant Earl Hartman, I feel satisfied that a solution will be made. It is not the purpose of this letter to cast reflection on any detectives who have investigated this case up to the present time, but the fact remains that it is unsolved. While we have able detectives in Montgomery County, they don't have the background or the contacts in the district that your men have. Sincerely yours, James H. Pugh. Both men lost faith in the investigation. Two years passed, and the lead seemed, in their minds, to be running dry. The detectives suggested by James Pugh, Floyd Truscott, and Earl Hartman, were legendary on the D.C. Metro Police Department, and they'd solved numerous high-profile cases over the previous decade. State Attorney James Pugh thought that if Truscott and Hartman couldn't solve it, nobody could. Two days later, on February 12th, James Pugh got his reply from Major Ernest Brown. It was not what he expected. My dear Mr. Pugh, 
I am in receipt of your letter of the 10th instant, in which you request the assignment of two detectives to complete the unfinished investigation which was previously discussed. In reply, permit me to advise that I will take the matter up with Commissioner Hazen as soon as possible, and if he gives his approval, I will be more than pleased to make this assignment. Sincerely yours, Major Ernest Brown. Ask permission from Commissioner Melvin Hazen. Why would the D.C. Superintendent of Police need permission from a D.C. Commissioner to assign two of his own detectives to a case? Apparently, James Pugh had that same question because he wrote to Capitol Transit President John Hanna immediately. His letter read in part, quote, You'll find enclosed a copy of a letter that I received from Major Brown this morning. He advises me that... And James Pugh put this part in quotation marks. He will take the matter up with Commissioner Hazen, and if he gives his approval, he'll be pleased to make this assignment. James Pugh finished his letter by asking John Hanna to have a talk with Commissioner Hazen himself, rather than rely on Major Brown to do it for him. So let me get this straight. The D.C. Superintendent of Police, the man in charge of the entire district police force, said that he needed permission from D.C. Commissioner Melvin Hazen to reassign two of his own detectives to a homicide case? The same case that three of his detectives had already been working for two years? That makes absolutely no sense. That would be like a police chief or sheriff today asking the mayor or governor for permission to assign their own personnel to a case. Yes, the murders happened within the jurisdiction of Maryland, just a mile over the D.C. line, but D.C. detectives Frank Brass, Richard McCarty, and Robert Barrett had already done plenty of work on it without any results. Why in the hell would Major Ernest Brown need permission from anyone to assign two new detectives? To be fair, I didn't know how the inner workings of D.C. government functioned back in the 1930s, so to help answer that question, I did a little research. Welcome to History Class. If you need to use the pencil sharpener, please do it quietly. That was just a little tip of the hat to my fellow Gen Xers. Back in the 1930s, the district government setup was arbitrary and erratic, a combination of federal oversight and local hacks, all having some kind of influence when the District of Columbia was a sort of enigma. Washington is a federal district, Therefore, its citizens are not residents of a state. D.C. citizens had no right to vote in presidential elections until the 23rd Amendment to the Constitution passed in 1961, when the people were finally granted electors despite having paid taxes like everybody else. It was a really shitty system for a long time. Taxation without representation, and sort of a mimic of the quagmire of issues that led to the American Revolution. Washington, D.C. is still battling for statehood today. Between 1878 and 1967, three district commissioners were appointed directly by the President of the United States to run the local government, but all legislation affecting the district still had to be passed by Congress. The district commissioners weren't like mayors or governors with a heavy political influence. They didn't vote on legislation, as did the Congress and Senate. They were put in charge of specific areas of district business to guide and direct projects and other governmental bodies. 
they were very influential to local government and they were put in charge of certain budgets and projects. Okay, formal class dismissed. Here's the really important bit to keep in mind. Between 1933 and 1941, the DC Commission president was Melvin Hazen. Each of the three commissioners had a portfolio of duties on which they provided oversight. The Metropolitan Police Department was directly within Melvin Hazen's chosen portfolio of duties. Right, Hazen chose to work closely with the DC Metro Police. So, that begs the previous question even further. Why would Police Superintendent Ernest Brown ask for Melvin Hazen's permission before assigning his own men to the Carbarn case? After receiving State Attorney James Pugh's request, Major Ernest Brown wrote him back a few days later and said that Commissioner Hazen had given his approval. But the two detectives that James Pugh requested, Floyd Truscott and Earl Hartman, they were on a very secret and very important investigation, and they wouldn't be available for several months to work on the Carbarn case. Major Brown signed his letter, Assuring you of my desire to cooperate fully in all matters of mutual interest, and with all good wishes, I'm cordially yours, Ernest W. Brown. To me, that sounded like a big up yours. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Going back to where we left off in the investigation, Detectives Volton and Rogers and the others were still trying to make some headway where they could with D.C. jail inmate Horace Davis and his information. 
During Horace Davis's initial interview in January of 1936, he told Volton and Rogers that Walter Oliver was good friends with a habitual felon named Robert Janney. Volton and Rogers followed up and they went to Baltimore to talk to Janney's wife, Lillian. Robert Janney broke Lillian's nose during a domestic fight in October of 1935, and he was serving eight years in prison for committing an armed robbery. Lillian said that Robert Janney had been employed as a watchman at the Baltimore Salesbrook Company, but he never worked on Sunday nights or Mondays during the day. James Mitchell and Emery Smith were killed on a Monday morning. When Lillian Janney was asked to recall any strange behavior from Robert Janney the year prior that stood out in her mind, she told Volton and Rogers that one morning in January of 1935, around the time of the Chevy Chase murders, Robert Janney came home with his pants soaking wet up to the knees, acted really nervous all day, and he jumped when a salesman knocked on the door. Lillian identified a photograph from an array on the coffee table as being William Franklin Clark, the man who strolled into police headquarters on the day of the murders to front-run street talk about his possible involvement and then inserted himself right in the middle of a homicide investigation. Lillian said that Robert Janney met with Clark and made casual introductions to her. She also identified James Weir, the man who gave William Clark an alibi for the night of the murders. Lillian continued and said that one evening in May of 1935, about five months after my uncle's murder, Robert Janney was bragging to her about some of his exploits, and he mentioned that he'd been a state's witness for the Mary Baker murder case and arrogantly told Lillian that the police would never solve it. Hold on a minute. The Mary Baker murder case? That was one of the most heinous and still unsolved murder cases in D.C. history, and Robert Janney said that he was a witness for the state? I gave a few details on the Mary Baker case back in episode four, but I need to talk about it in more detail because if Robert Janney had any involvement, that's really important for this investigation. The Mary Baker murder investigation started on the morning of Saturday, April 12, 1930, when Arlington County Deputy Sheriff Archie Richards found an abandoned car in the middle of the road near Arlington National Cemetery. He looked inside the car and saw a large bloodstain on the passenger seat. He recorded the license plate and notified his superiors that he found what looked to be a violent crime scene. That license plate came back to Mary Baker. Mary Elizabeth Baker was born on May 20, 1898 in South Carolina, the daughter of an Episcopal minister. Mary was small-framed, brunette, and attractive. Mary moved to Washington, D.C. with dreams of a government job, an ambition she realized as a clerk at the U.S. Navy Department in the brand new Bureau of Aeronautics. She continued her strong religious upbringing by regularly attending services at the Church of the Epiphany in downtown D.C. Mary was single, and she had a few casual relationships with married men. None of them seemed to be intimate, but she had been seen going to lunches, bowling alleys, and other recreational places with them during the daytime hours. She recently moved out of D.C. to Lion Park, Virginia, into a bungalow with two other women. Their house bordered Arlington National Cemetery to the west, just over the Potomac River from Washington. On April 11, 1930, which was a Friday, Mary left her job at the Navy Department at about 4.30 
and was last seen by a friend at approximately 5.45 after attending an afternoon church service. Mary offered her friend a ride to her car, but her friend declined and decided to walk. Mary continued to walk the six blocks to her parking space by the White House Ellipse on her own, ostensibly to meet her roommate at a downtown department store by six o'clock. Mary was known to be punctual and she always kept her engagements, but she never showed up. Around noon on Saturday, April 12th, a few hours after the discovery of her abandoned and bloody vehicle, Mary Baker's body was discovered in a muddy culvert off of Cemetery Road, about a mile away from her car in Arlington National Cemetery. She had been beaten so badly that it almost knocked out her teeth. She was sexually assaulted, strangled, and shot three times with a 32 caliber gun. Her death certificate spelled out her demise in brief, wretched terms. Killed by pistol shots in throat and back. Jesus, she saw it coming. Her new roommates were brought to the scene to identify her body, and one of them collapsed on the dirt road at the sight of her friend lying in the mud, eight feet below, next to a galvanized runoff pipe, discarded like yesterday's garbage. The evening before, at around six o'clock, the time she was scheduled to meet her friend at the department store, three witnesses reported seeing a woman in a violent argument inside of a car with a heavy-set man who was wearing a light gray slouch hat. One of the witnesses memorized the license plate. It was Mary Baker's car. All three witnesses immediately reported that fight to the police, but the car was gone by the time the police got to the scene. It wouldn't be discovered until the following morning with the remnants of Mary's horrific struggle left on the passenger seat. During their initial investigation, the detectives recovered a palm print from the driver's window of Mary Baker's car, which was compared to every potential suspect. There were a lot of twists and turns in this case, which became known as the Mystery of 101 Clues. A four-part series was written for True Detective Mysteries magazine while the case was still ongoing, and I ordered a copy. The case was filled with false confessions, intrigue, lost and found evidence, questionable associations, and subterfuge. Several of Mary's suitors were arrested, and their alibis were substantiated by their own wives. Several other men were initially charged and then released when the evidence didn't bear fruit against them. One man fabricated a story out of whole cloth about his involvement just to get the newspaper publicity. His miniature golf course was a failure, and he figured that inserting himself into a sensational case like this one would bring in revenue. There was no shortage of suspects or complete nut jobs, but like the Carbarn case, no one was ever charged with her murder and unfortunately, it remains unsolved. Where did Robert Janney fit into this horrible crime? He wasn't just a state's witness as he boasted to his wife. He was a suspect. Janney had been arrested on May 10th, about a month after Mary Baker's murder on the same street corner by the Ellipse where she had last been seen in the fight with the heavyset man. Robert Janney was arrested for harassing a woman he jumped on the running board of her car before leaping back off and getting into his own car and chasing her down. The woman stopped and told a police officer who commandeered a civilian's vehicle and continued the pursuit after Janney through the streets of DC. 
They finally caught him at 14th and Pennsylvania Avenue. Robert Janney told the officers that he recognized the lady as a former neighbor and he just wanted to talk to her. All of this happened around the same time that Robert Janney had been nailed for trafficking heroin, so he might have been blitzed out of his mind. The police found a 32 caliber semi-automatic in his room during a search subsequent to his arrest, and Janney told the investigators that he bought it from a man several weeks before. Official records showed that the gun had been transferred on March 31st, about two weeks before Mary Baker's murder. Ballistic tests of that gun were completed on her case, which showed inconsistencies with the bullets from her body. There's no information about whether or not Janney's gun was ever tested against the car barn bullets, since it was the same caliber and model, or if it was ever released back to him from the evidence locker once he got out of that particular stint in jail, that was highly doubtful, since he was a convicted felon. There's no further information on the disposition of that gun. In Robert Janney's room, the investigators also found a pawn ticket from New York City that was dated April 11th, the day Mary Baker went missing. So apparently that was Janney's alibi. A comparison of the palm print on the vehicle's window wasn't a match to Janney either. But it was later revealed that several people touched the car before the palm print was recovered, so nobody knew if it was even related to the crime or not. Going back to April 11th, the day of Mary Baker's abduction and subsequent murder, she was seen fighting with a man who several witnesses described as heavyset. I found a photograph of Robert Janney in a historical paper, and he doesn't fit that description at all. Janney was really thin and gaunt, likely from years of drug abuse. He had an alibi of being in New York via that pawn shop ticket on April 11th, so the investigators only had the harassment and reckless driving charges to hold him. While he was in jail and still being questioned, Robert Janney admitted to being arrested for a violation of the Mann Act in 1928. The Mann Act makes transporting a woman or child for the purposes of prostitution a crime, so I'll just add that onto his long list of offenses. Janney was eventually exonerated, and there's no historical documentation available to show exactly how he might have been a witness for the state or why they may have had a need for information he provided during the investigation. When he was running his mouth to his wife Lillian, he said the police would never solve it, so it made me wonder exactly how much he actually knew about the Mary Baker murder. There's no doubt in my mind that Robert Janney was a feckless turd who had served multiple sentences for everything from drug trafficking to armed robbery to human trafficking. Detectives Volton and Rogers were really keen on what Lily and Janney had to provide, and during their talk in May of 1935, she added a detail that was a slap in the face. After his mention about the Mary Baker murder, Robert Janney also said something about Chevy Chase and said that he, a woman, and three other men were mixed up on a job and had to shoot their way out. He got $100 out of it. Just like Horace Davis, the detectives seemingly had another hearsay confession about the car barn murders to figure out. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Lillian Janney had now become a very valuable asset to the detectives, and they wanted to know more. They already found out that Janney's work schedule didn't include Sunday nights or Mondays. After they spoke with his manager at the Baltimore Salesbrook Company, the time card in Janney's own handwriting showed that he didn't work on Sunday, January 20th or on Monday, January 21st, the night of my uncle's murder. Lillian made connections between Robert Janney, William Clark, and Clark's friend, James Weir. Clark's name had been dropped as a potential suspect a number of times by different people right after the murders, and he inserted himself into the investigation. With Robert Janney now in prison for armed robbery, Volton and Rogers hatched a plan to see what else they could find out. The following Sunday, which was Visitation Day, Volton and Rogers had Lily and Janney meet with them again, and they all drove to the Maryland State Penitentiary. They wanted Lillian to meet with her husband and give him some bait to see if he'd bite. Volton and Rogers gave Lillian a ruse and asked her to have a chat with Robert Janney. She was to mention that two detectives had paid her a visit the night before and asked her a bunch of questions about Janney being in Washington and something about a job near the district. She was told to tell Janney that a man had been arrested. She couldn't remember his name, but that he chirped like a canary. She was also to tell him that they'd checked up on his time card at work and found out that he wasn't working on the night of the car barn murders. Lillian was asked to carefully remember any names that Robert Janney mentioned. While Lillian was in the visitation room, Volton and Rogers went to the prison warden and told him that they wanted copies of any letters coming into or out of the jail from Janney. They went out to the car to wait for Lillian. When she came back out, she said she followed their instructions and told Janney the story. After she mentioned the job near Washington and that a man had been arrested and snitched, the blood drained out of Janney's face and he turned sheet white. He said, 
Was it James Moody? He told Lillian not to worry, that the police wouldn't lock her up. Robert Janney's reaction told me everything I needed to know. Janney was definitely one of my suspects. But there was no interrogation of Janney in the file, no interview notes, nothing regarding a meeting between the detectives and Janney after this admission. But Volton and Rogers still followed up on the name James Moody. They went back to the D.C. Identification Bureau and did a search for James Moody, extending it to James Mooney, just in case they misheard Lillian's pronunciation. There was nothing to be found for either name. After their Sunday visit with Lillian at the prison, the warden made good, and the detectives started to receive the jail letters to and from Janney as requested. Janney was writing to a lot of people, including Lillian. On February 7, 1936, he wrote, Dear Lil, I will have some news for you in a few days regarding matter you spoke to me of. Don't worry. I'll do all I can. You didn't tell me where to write. I waited. Should I not hear from this, I'll know you didn't get it, so we'll write to 1501 Tuesday, but won't put address on it. Please write and send some stamps right away. Don't worry. Everything will be okay for you, even if it costs me as much as it did before. As ever, Bob. P.S. Let me know where to write. Important, as I'm investigating that matter. Robert Janney was desperate to find out why detectives had paid his wife a visit, and it sounded like he was trying to get information about it from inside the prison. The inmates were only allowed two visits a month, every other Sunday, and there were no phones back then, so letters were their only means of communication with the outside world. Who could Robert Janney possibly be talking to inside the Maryland State Penitentiary about investigators questioning a job near Washington? William Franklin Clark. Yeah, he was in the same prison at the same time. Hey, old pal, what are you in for? And that story, <laughs> it's a whopper. If you have information about the Car Barn murder case, go to the Shattered Souls Facebook page and leave me a message. Opening music by Sam Johnson at samjohnsonlive.com. Shattered Souls is produced by Karen Smith and Angel Heart Productions. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.